take your copies of God's Word and to turn with me to the book of Philippians. Chapter 2, we're going to be in verses 12 through 13 in our sermon entitled, Sanctification, God's Working in Our Work. We're going verse by verse through the book of Philippians in our sermon series, Enduring Joy. We've gotten to chapter 2, we're in verses 12 through 13 this week. The text reads, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is the word of the Lord. Let us hear it and heed it. May God be blessed by its reading. If you know your Bible stories, you know the, the story of the Exodus. We, of course, know that God literally and historically rescued Israel from the slavery in Egypt, brought them through the wilderness 40 years, and placed them in the promised land after the conquest of the promised land. And we note, however, that what literally and historically happened for them in the Old Testament is what spiritually happens to us who have believed in Jesus. That we are rescued from our slavery to sin. And we are put and formed into a new people, a new nation of Christians, the church. And we are brought through the wilderness into the promised land of heaven that is coming to us. And I want you to note some things. That God's activity and the people's activity in that exodus is different at different times and in different places. What I mean is that God is the one who worked upon the Egyptian uh, gods and Pharaoh in the plagues that came upon Egypt. And it was God who brought them out of Egypt with a mighty hand that the Israelites didn't have to do anything. That God split the Red Sea and God allowed them to walk across the Red Sea on dry ground. And then God brought the sea back down upon Pharaoh and his servants and his chariots and his horses. And defeated the most powerful army in the world at that time without Israel ever raising a sword. God did everything. They did nothing. And he brought them out of slavery. But when they crossed the Jordan River and were going to take the promised land, God said, I will fight for you. Nevertheless, they still had to fight. They had to do the walk around Jericho seven times. And it was God who made the wall fall down as a result of that. 
Still, they had to rush in and to take the city, but it was God who fought the battle and won the battle for them. And this happened throughout the conquest. That they fought, but God gave them the victory. That they fought, but God is the one who was working in and through them. And it's the same in our salvation. That we are brought to Christ through doing nothing of our own, no works, no earning, no nothing. God does everything to bring us into this state of salvation. But now He calls upon us who are saved to work. To work. But He promises us that it is He who energizes and helps us to work. He is the one who is actually doing the work in and through us as we work our salvation. That we are called to fight and destroy sin, but He has promised through the Holy Spirit that He will be fighting and destroying sin in and among us. And that's what Paul is talking about in this passage. That's what Paul is calling them to. That's what Paul is calling the Philippians as a church. People who are already saved, but are also being saved. He's calling them to work out their salvation with fear and with trembling. I have three points. The first point is this. We see in 12, the first half of verse 12, Paul's confident expectation of obedience. We see Paul's confident expectation of obedience in the first half. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. You'll remember that the Philippian church had been partners with Paul from the first day until now. That they had had this relationship with Paul and that in many ways the Philippian church was Paul's favorite church because of this partnership that they had had with him. And he had no, knew of their obedience in the past and he expects nothing more from them in the future than that obedience as well. And it's this obedience that he is calling them to This obedience that is the key theme of this passage. Whereas back in verses 1 through 4, humility and considering others more important than ourselves is perhaps the key theme of that passage. Obedience is now the theme of this passage. And there are a couple of links here with what's been said before. A couple of contextual clues that we link in our passage to what Paul has talked about already. We've just gotten through the great Christ hymn of verses 6 through 11. The great hymn of he who is in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very form of a servant and being found in human likeness, he came to earth as a man. Humbling himself to the point of obedience, even death upon a cross. So that we know God exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So he, he says to us then that we're supposed to have this mind 
in us that was found in Christ Jesus. Whereas before, he said verses 1 through 4, he's talking about the humility with which Jesus did not consider equality with God a thing to be held on to, but made himself nothing. He humbled himself. But also, now he's picking up this thing, not just of humility, but obedience. That he humbled himself to the point of death, became obedient to the point of death, even death upon a cross. So he wants to apply this great hymn of Christ and the example of Christ to the example uh, to the life and situation of the Philippians. Did you notice that there is a therefore in verse 9 and there is a therefore to begin our passage? Therefore God has highly exalted him. Why? Because he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, this is what God did. Now he says in verse 11, I mean verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, in light of what Christ has done by humbling self and becoming obedient, this is what you are to do. This is what you are to do. Frank Thielman says Paul wants them to obey as Christ obeyed. And presumably this means to work for unity by avoiding the kind of selfish ambition that leads to dissension. The second contextual clue goes back further than that. He, he talks about uh, them being obedient as we see now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. When he was with them, when he was teaching them in Philippi, they demonstrated early on this willingness to partner in the gospel and this obedience. And now that he is in prison, now that he is not sure whether he will live or die, and whether he will be able to come and see them again, whether I'm present with you or whether I'm absent, he wants them to fight for this unity and stand together and not be divided in any way. We go back to chapter 1 and verse 27 and we see him talking about this. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent. Do you see where that language sounds the same as our passage? Whether I come to see you or am absent. So now, not only in my absence, but much more. Not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. So he's linking that back to verse 27. Which means something like this. That when he calls upon them. To work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He means essentially the same thing as conduct yourselves in a manner that is worthy of the gospel that you've already believed. He means something similar. He said live as citizens of the kingdom of God. That's sort of what he means. And so Paul is confident based upon their, his past experience with them of their future uh, expectation that they will obey. Secondly, I want you to see our conscious effort in obedience. Our conscious and concerted effort in obedience. He calls upon them 
to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. This is the command in the passage. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And we might hear that. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. We might ask ourselves, does this contradict what Paul says in other places about the grace of God? The nature of God's grace. Doesn't this contradict Romans 4, 5? And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. There it tells us that it's important that we're not work for our salvation, but believe. Is this contradiction that? Romans eleven six. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. If we're called to work out our salvation, why is he, in that contradicting of salvation by grace alone? Have you ever noticed in Ephesians chapter 2, that, that passage that, that talks about that it's by grace that we're saved, that works is mentioned in two different ways in that passage. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10 for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves, but is a gift of God. It's, salvation is by grace alone. He says, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. There he is decrying any way that salvation is a result of works. But then it says in the very next verse, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Salvation is not by and according to good works, not based upon the grounding of good works, but it is for and unto good works. So we need to note that Paul here is saying not work for, for your salvation, but work out your salvation. Not work toward your salvation, but work out your salvation in fear and trembling. He's not saying that works are the basis or the merit by which we are saved. And he is, Paul is distinguishing here when he talks about work out your salvation. He doesn't mean, sometimes we tend to think, that that just means the beginning of our coming, to our conversion. Sometimes we're, we're tempted to think that that salvation means just what we call justification. That is God declaring us righteous on the basis of our faith alone. We are justified by faith alone. Only through believing does God declare us righteous by believing in Christ. But salvation doesn't stop at justification. And salvation includes more than merely justification. It includes sanctification and adoption and, and other things. So the full scope of our salvation, he's not talking about work out your justification. He's talking about work out your sanctification. All of salvation. Notice in Romans 5, 9. 
how salvation is mentioned differently than justification. It says, since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. We have been already justified, declared righteous by the blood of Christ. But much more than there's a future when we will be saved, fully saved from the presence of this evil world and sin that we live in. Fully redeemed from the wrath of God. Calvin says in this passage that salvation is taken to mean the entire course of our calling. And that this term includes all the things by which God accomplishes that perfection to which he has determined us by his free election. Again, Paul does not say work for your salvation, but work out your salvation. And it's not just a distinguishing between justification and sanctification, but that process by which we become more and more like Christ. But it is also a sense in which salvation is already obtained by the believer. You and I are already saved. And that's why we can speak. I'm saved. I am saved. I have been saved. But scripture says that not only we are saved and have been saved, but that we will be saved. That there is still a future aspect to salvation. So what we mean is that there is this tension between the already and the not yet in scripture about our salvation. Let me read for you some verses that talk about salvation as having already come to the believer. <laughs> Romans 8:24. For in this hope we were saved. So he tells us we already are saved. Ephesians 2:5. Even when we're dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. You've already been saved. Ephesians 2.8 For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. He speaks of salvation as having already come. 2 Timothy 1.9 Who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works. But because of his own purpose and grace. Which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages of Again, he has already saved us. Titus 3, 5. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So there are verses that have spoken of our salvation as having already passed, already come to us. We presently are saved. But there are other verses that talk about salvation as being still future as still waiting upon that Romans 13 11 besides this you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed there is acting as if there's still a future aspect of our salvation 1 Thessalonians 5 9 for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's still a destiny of salvation for us. So he tells us to work out 
our salvation. Meaning we're already saved. The Philippians are already saved. The people that he's telling them to work out your salvation. This salvation that you have. It's already there, but it's not yet still. There's still a future. And he's confident that the one who began a good work in them, verse 6 of chapter 1, will bring it to the day of completion in Christ Jesus. But he's telling them to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. This emphasizes, to say to work it out with fear and trembling, emphasizes the seriousness and the sensitivity with which they're to work it out. Paul talks about, uses this passage in 1 Corinthians 2, 3, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. 2 Corinthians seven fifteen, and his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. In Ephesians 6, 5, bond servants obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ. So this is the way that slaves should obey their masters. It's the, it's the way that employees should obey their boss. It's the way that they obeyed Timothy as an apostolic representative with fear and with trembling. And we're to obey the Lord our God, working on our salvation with fear and with trembling. This kind of reverent awe that God is the creator and the, that he is the one who judges and he rewards goodness and punishes evil and wickedness. We recognize this. So it's impossible because sometimes you hear commentators talk about this passage, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, that they emphasize one aspect or the other, that they tone down the fullness of this verse. And I want you to see that it is calling upon those who take sanctification and salvation seriously to put in effort, to put in, to strive for holiness, to work at your salvation because you believe the promise that God is the one working in you, because you know the promise that you are saved by the grace and blood of Christ. This, this, there are other passages that tell us to pursue sanctification with this kind of effort. 2 Peter 1.10 Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. Be diligent. Don't just kind of, if I'm saved, I'm saved. Oh, no, I'm not. No, be diligent to confirm the truth of your calling and your election in Christ. Hebrews 4.11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Strive to enter the rest of God. Go into the promised land working out your salvation with fear and trembling, with obedience for the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul has said, but by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was in me. Do you hear that? Paul is saying, I am what I am by God's grace, but I worked harder than any of them. 
But it was not really me working, but God working in me. But I worked harder than any of them. The difference between true Christianity and legalism is not one of effort. It's one of motive. We ought to strive to obey the Lord, to kill sin within us. Now, in this idea, there there are ditches on both sides. We want to walk this narrow road. We've got to stay out of the ditches. And there are ditches on either side of this. There, one of the ditches that's here, when, when they, people here work out your salvation with fear and trembling, they think this is some sort of uh, spiritual self-help. That this is some sort of God helping those who help themselves sort of thing. That we give a little and God gives more, or we come halfway and God comes to us, and that we synergize, we cooperate with God. That, that God does His part in salvation and and I do my part in salvation. And that, that's a lie from the pit of hell. That we don't cooperate with God. That God is the one who saves us by His grace. We don't need to have unbalanced views of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. We preach both. That you are responsible for the decisions that you make. And God is absolutely sovereign over all things, including the decisions that you make. We don't deny either one of those statements because both are biblically sound and biblically emphasized. God is completely and utterly sovereign over every maverick molecule in the universe, and humans are responsible for their decisions that they may. Both of these elements must be stressed. So we can't say that we cooperate with God. That's one of the ditches that we can fall into. The other ditch is those that emphasize divine sovereignty to an extreme without while denying human responsibility. They say all you need to do is rest in grace. That you just let go and let God. You know, that you just did you just walk in, in grace of God and, you know, you'll, you'll just be holy. You don't actually have to pray and read your Bible and, you know, try to kill sin in your life or anything like that. That God's just going to make you holy over a period of time. That's also a lot from the pit of hell. Both are true. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because God's the You must put forth effort in sanctification, but God supplies the effort, the energy. So, having talked then about Paul's confident expectation of their obedience, our concerted or conscious effort in obedience, let's thirdly look at God's causal empowerment of obedience. In verse 13, we see this. God is the one doing this. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Never, ever, Christian, never forget this truth. Never forget this truth that God 
that you are God's workmanship, that God is at work in you. You believed in Jesus Christ, you've come to him, God is at work in you. He hasn't stopped, he hasn't left off, he hasn't said, they're a lost cause, I'm giving up. He who began a good work in you is going to carry it out to completion. God is at work in and through you. He is at work in us. And this is not cooperation, as I said, that we do our part, God does His part. No, this is causation. God is working, and because God is working in us, we work. Without God working in us, we don't work. But God is working, so that should encourage us. It should motivate us. Work. Because God's working. You don't give up on you because God hasn't given up on you. God's still working. No matter what sin you fall into, and, and sinners can fall into great sin at times. I mean, saints can fall into great sin at times. Don't give up on you because God has not in Christ. This is not God helps those who help themselves. John Murray has said of this passage, God's working in us is not suspended because we work. So when we're working, that doesn't mean that God stopped working. Nor our working suspended because God works. If God's at work, that doesn't mean that we're doing nothing. Neither is the relation strictly one of cooperation as if God did His part and we did ours so that the conjunction or coordination of both produce the required result. No, it's not cooperation, not synergism. God works, and we also work. But the relation is that because God works, we work. All working out of salvation on our part is the effect of God's working in us. God is the cause, we are the effect. Our working is the effect. We have here not only the explanation of all acceptable activity on our part, but we also have the incentive to our willing and working. The more persistently active we are in working, the more persuaded we may be that all the energizing grace and power is of God. So it's, it's an encouragement and a motivation for us to work for the Lord because we know that God is at work. In us, that any of our doing, God gets the credit, God gets the glory, God is the one who is doing it. Now notice what he's doing. He's energizing our will and enabling our work. That any action that we have, any obedience that we take, requires us wanting to do it and requires us then acting upon that desire. Any action has those two aspects. And it says that God is involved and working in both of those aspects. He works in our desire to do this and in our ability and empowerment to do the activity. Now there are some verses that talk about God's control over our wills and over our desires. John 1, 11 through 13. He came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. God's will is what is utmost here. 
Romans 9, 16. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Where does sin and temptation start? It starts in this, this evil desire, this desire to sin. And then James tells us sin gives way to desire, and we're lured away by these desires and enticed, and it gives birth to sin, which gives birth to death, and, and so on and so forth. So God, because of our sinfulness, because sin has affected us, not merely on the external realm, but in the internal realm, in the heart, God's activity must not be merely outside wooing us, but God's activity must be in the heart, which is why it's not mentioned here in this passage, but it is the Holy Spirit. He is the one who is active person of God, working in us and through us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And he reaches down to the point of our very wills, our very desires, and encourages and energizes our wills to desire what we didn't previously desire. When you become a Christian, you get new wants, new affections. There's still that remnant of sin. You may struggle with certain sins more than others too but changes our desires but he not only reaches down to our will he enables our work as well both to will and to work according to his pleasure Calvin says there are in any action two principal parts the will and the effective power both of these Paul ascribes to God what more remains to us to glory in well, nothing, nothing remains for us to glory in. If God is working in us so that He is enabling our will and energizing our work for the Lord, then He is the one who's, who's working. And we are working because He is at work in us. Which means this, that all of this ends in worship the glory of God. Our sanctification is the will of God. Thessalonians says that. First Thessalonians says, what is your, the will of God is your sanctification. God desires that you be holy and God is at work in you being holy. Guess what? God loves his job. He doesn't quit on his job. God's job and God's will and God's desire is to work he is working in you to change you through His Spirit to change you from one degree of glory to the next. He is working you. He doesn't quit. He doesn't stop. He loves His job. He, he works at nighttime and in the morning and He never sleeps. He never clocks out. God is at work in you to bring you to sanctification, to make you holy. I hope that you notice that there is a link here between chapter 2, verse 13. For God is at work in you and Chapter 1, verse 6, which we've mentioned several times now. He who began a good work in you will carry it out to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. Moises Silva has said of this passage that the point is that while sanctification requires conscious effort, that's what we said, and concentration, our activity takes place not in a legalistic spirit with a view to gaining God's favor, 
but rather in a spirit of humility and thanksgiving, recognizing that without Christ, we can do nothing, and so He alone deserves the glory. So Paul, thinking about the obedience of the Philippians, thinking about Christ's obedience and how he desires for the Philippians to model and to imitate himself and Christ, who didn't have this selfish ambition, but with, with unity and humility, was obedient to the point of death. He desired that for the Philippians. And because of that, in, in thinking about that, he tells them, he commands them, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He desires to see them continue to press on with steadfastness and perseverance and to work out, but then maybe thinking that that could be misconstrued. He tells them, for it's God who's at work in you, both to will and to act according to His good pleasure. Work, you must, you must work, but God's working. Be encouraged and be motivated to work because God is at work in you to will and to act according to His good pleasure. If you're, if you're not a Christian here today, I, I, hope, I hope that you see the kind of care and love and concern that God has for people in Christ. That He desires to save you, to deliver you from the power of sin. That, that, no long, that sin may no longer have dominion over you, that he desires to take away the penalty that that sin deserved, and he did that by, by dying on a cross. I hope that you see that one day your salvation will be complete if, if, if you come and believe in Christ, that one day that you will be complete in salvation and that he'll remove the presence of sin from your life. But you have only to to fear and tremble before God in judgment if you have not believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I beg of you, I plead with you to be reconciled with God, to repent and come to the Lord Jesus Christ this time. Would you pray with me?